Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, we have a great show lined up for you today. I'm so excited about this. Uh, I have been long, long, long-term fan of Karen Carpenter. Um, literally own every record the Carpenters did, um, even some jingles that they did for um, professional companies before their hits made it really big. Um, followed their careers, and followed the uh, tragic demise of Karen, um, you know, real-time, live, as, as it was all going down. Um, I thought I knew everything about the Carpenters, but um, this week that delusion has been lifted as I watched and had the opportunity to watch a documentary on her that is premiering at the Santa Barbara Film Festival, so it's just now hitting the film festival circuit, and I'm sure will eventually make its way onto um, streaming and other other sources there. But it's called Karen Carpenter, Starving for Perfection. And uh, for those of you who are diehard Carpenter fans like me, who have even seen the old Barbie doll representation of Karen Carpenter's life, and the uh, I think it was CBS biopic that they did on her, um, this documentary goes deeper and reveals even much, much more um, than I was aware of. Um, today's guest is um, the man behind that documentary, uh, Randy Schmidt. And Randy, this was not like something he just came up with out of the blue, pardon the expression, but he wrote a book called Little Girl Blue um, that this is based on. And this is a biography of Karen, which goes into even more depth than the documentary. So um, Randy knows everything about everything having to do with the Carpenters. Um, so can't wait to talk to him about that. He has also done biographies on Judy Garland and Dolly Parton. Um, so obviously when he gets someone in their sights, his sights, he goes for it. And um his writing is um, in-depth, it's fascinating, it is not sensational, um, so it's not, you know, clickbaity type stuff, but really gives such a detailed background and picture, um, and, and very, very exciting. Um, he is, uh, he's been called on as an expert for the Carpenters in a lot of productions, he's true Hollywood story, A&E's biography, VH1's Behind the Music. Um, he is a contributor to the award-winning podcast, Dolly Parton's America. He's a music educator in Denton, Texas. And uh, the gay publication, he said, dubbed him as the handsome author, Mr. Aficionado. So um, that, that is who Randy is, and we will be talking to him in just a few minutes. Um, also waiting on deck is the co-host of the show, Brody Levesque. Brody is the editor of the Los Angeles Blade 
magazine. Um, before I turn it over to Brody, I do want to point out one story in The Blade um, that I think everyone should be reading. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Blade readers. Um, I had a, a story in there uh, over the past few weeks. Um, it was actually a story based on the interview from this podcast with uh, Raid Saeed, who is the star of My Unorthodox Life. Um, you guys put that story on the top of the L.A. Blade's most popular list for several days. I think it was for like about a week. Um, it was the number one story. And thank you for that, and I'm glad you liked it. And, and um, um, thank you for, for reading, and thank you for listening to the podcast. This week and today, the number seven story on the most popular list on the L.A. Blade is a story called Trump to Weaponize Feds Against Trans-Americans If Re-Elected. Um, this story should be number one. Everybody needs to read this. And the story covers only part of what Trump is coming after um, based on a series of videos that he has put out that outlines what he has intended should he, God forbid, be elected president again. This is fascism. This is out-and-out out fascism. Um, we could not have a more terrifying set of statements from a, a public leader if Hitler himself was running um, for president of the United States. Um, he is going after, as this article points out, all trans-Americans, not just trans kids, but all trans-Americans. He is going after everybody of another race. and I. It is implied, but not as, as overtly stated as his vitriol towards trans-Americans, but LGBTs, he's coming after us too. This man is absolutely terrifying. I am so sick of seeing stories in, in the publications about how he's in trouble and, oh, he's going to get indicted and any day now, get off the pot, people get this guy indicted, get him off the public stage. He is dangerous, and we need to pay attention, and we need to make sure that he is stopped because this is a real and, and very, very dangerous threat to this country. January 6th was only the prelude to what he has in mind. There's my little unvarnished opinion. And with that, uh, welcome to the show, Brody Levesque. And Brody, what else is going on? Hey, good afternoon, everyone, or good morning, depending upon where you're from. Um, as it turns out, the story has since moved up. Since you looked at it, it's now number four, trending with our readership. So people are starting to pick up and, uh, you know, do their thing, as it were. Okay. Um, I have a story first I want to tell everybody about. Um that uh, it's kind of sad. Um, There was a young uh, trans woman in the UK uh, who was 20 years old. Her name was Alice Littman. And um, when she was 16, which is a year 11 in the British school system, uh, she came out to her parents that she wanted to transition. Okay. And, you know, it it was one of those things where um, Britain has a centralized healthcare system and there's one clinic in the country, which is referred to as the NHS Gender Identity Development Service, and there was a list. 
and it's one clinic. And she was referred to that clinic uh, in August 2019, and she was still waiting for her initial assessment. Things are getting progressively worse. Things for trans folks in the U.K. in general are getting worse. And not too long ago, she took her life at the age of 20. Um, there will be a coroner's inquest uh, later on this year, but there's a lot of finger pointing. They're finger pointing at the National Health Service itself, and of course, they're finger point- pointing directly at the Tory government uh, and some of the open hostility uh, towards the trans community and the trans kids. Um, and it's a very sad story, but it's also serving as a warning because here in the United States, we are starting to see the same kind of groundswell of anti-trans rhetoric we're seeing at last count, I think the American Civil Liberties Union, when I spoke to them, uh, I think last week, at the end of the week, um, they told me there's over 120 pieces of legislation spread out over 12 U.S. states that will basically take away rights, okay, from trans youth and trans people. These bills are specifically aimed at healthcare. They're aimed at sports. They're aimed at everything. Um, earlier this week in Missouri, um, a young 11-year-old uh, and his dad, who's a rabbi from the St. Louis area, um, testified in front of a Missouri Senate committee because in that state, they've got 12 bills against trans people. This kid's got a younger sibling who's trans. There is impact. There is things going on that people need to pay attention to. And, you know, we've been seeing this trend now for the better part of the last couple of years. But now it's almost the full court press. And then you have governors like Ron DeSantis in Florida, Greg Abbott in Texas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, uh, Governor Ivey in Alabama. And they have basically unleashed the power of, you know, state government against they're trans citizens and they're queer citizens. You know, it's it's kind of an it's it's kind of an even thing. Okay, um, so what we're seeing here, okay, is that um, it, it, it's an ongoing problem, and you know, people really seriously need to pay attention to this. Okay, um, and it, it's one of these things where I think very strongly that the entire community needs to band together and to do something about it. And, and even just, you know, it's like for every three steps we seem to make forward, we take 10 back. Well, in order to kind of block the 10 back, Rob, I think that, you know, we need to amplify the signal and we need to put an end to it. Um, and, and it's just, you know, these are some of the things that are going on that I find highly, highly alarming. Um, so that that's kind of at the top of it and it kind of, meshes and dovetails with, you know, Trump and his idiocy. The problem is he's not the only one in the Republican Party doing that. So um, there you go. No, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, I think it's gone beyond idiocy. I mean, we've, we've you know, the, we know the clowns are running the clown show, um, but they've, uh, the House Republicans um, just now had to have an amendment that was, you know, against socialism. Um, you know, which is ridiculous because there are social programs and it's, you know, this, they've created this meaningless boogeyman. Um, they have um, thrown 
um, the uh, congresswoman off the the uh, committee she was on because she was Muslim and they wanted to paint her as anti-Semitic, even though they have all these anti-Semitic sins themselves. I mean, it's um, but the the strategy with Trump right now is I don't think we can minimize and even though it's idiotic it is that makes it even more dangerous because you know none of the MAGA stuff has ever made sense um, it's always been idiocy that isn't the issue the issue is how pervasive it is because if you go back to well, Nazism I mean, and the core beginning of that that was idiocy too and the, the really scary part was how seductive it became and they yeah, are and, and I think, out all the stops. Well, and I think that we need to pay attention to Governor DeSantis in particular, because he's a Republican front runner. Trump's not going to be elected. He's damaged goods. But the problem is the people that are front runners in his party, okay, like DeSantis, are a serious threat. And you look at DeSantis's current track record in Florida, and it's frightening. And he's got a lot of the mainstream Republicans lining up behind him, including the money people who, who will put him in office. And, you know, that's what's got people concerned more than anything else. Um, and, you know, DeSantis is definitely a threat that needs to be addressed. But um, it, overall, it, just what's going on needs to be addressed. He is. But, but here's what the Trump strategy is, is – Trump's strategy is to out DeSantis DeSantis, which is what these videos are about. He is also, um, the campaign behind him is also opening the door to all these other people coming in to, quote, unquote, run against him, like Nikki Haley. Um, And the intent there is they know those people will siphon off small percentages, but they will siphon them off of DeSantis. And Trump will hold a percentage of that, those hardcore MAGAs, and that will get him the nomination. The, the thing that is going to take Trump out is an indictment, my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree, but I, I, I think that we do need to be careful because most of the, some of the worst of what we're seeing now is at a state and local level. It has nothing at all to do with Trump and politics. It has to do with the movement in the state houses. And, and like what we saw in Missouri, what we're seeing now in Tallahassee, we're seeing in Texas and other places, you know, we've got to be very cautious that we don't let, you know, Republican National Party politics and Trump suck all the oxygen out of the room because this is happening now. These legislative bodies are currently in session. So the need is now to do something. I mean, I'm not saying we don't need to worry about Trump in 2024, but we really seriously need to do something now proactively because these well, state I, houses, I these state and, bodies and, are meeting. And, yeah, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about doing something about Trump in 2024. I'm talking about doing something about Trump now. It's, the, the, the two are not unrelated. His, his message and their message are the same. So his message now is going to fuel all of that activity in the state houses now. They all need to be stopped now. So anyway, what else you got, Brody? Um, Just kind of looking around the country real quick. Um, One of the other things that I did want to mention, 
before we go to our guest is um, that the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in a ruling earlier this week in a case uh, U.S. versus Rabini basically said that the federal law that targets those believed to pose a domestic violence threat, okay, um, and those laws that are structured to keep the guns out of their hands is unconstitutional. And so what ends up happening is that, uh, you know, the law that prohibits specifically individuals from possessing a firearm while under a domestic violence restraining order, with this judge, with this circuit court now calling it unconstitutional, and even though uh, it will be appealed by the U.S. Justice Department, uh, it, it leaves a lot of um, a lot of a lot of dangerous questions that are going to have to be addressed. Now, the Fifth Circuit applies to Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas. Okay, for now, broadly speaking, the federal law against that is not enforceable in those jurisdictions. However, sitting next door to the Fifth U.S. Circuit is the Eleventh Circuit, which is just as conservative in Atlanta. And there is another case that's working its way through the lower court system there along the same lines. Um, and it is widely expected that that circuit court will also do the same thing. Um, now, California Governor Gavin Newsom, who's been leading the charge on gun control, issued a statement yesterday. And this is what the governor said. Now, a federal appeals court has ruled domestic abusers have the right to carry firearms. Where's the line? Who's next? The governor added, he named the judges, uh, two of which, by the way, were Trump appointees. And then the governor said this, these three zealots are hell-bent on a deranged vision of guns for all, leaving government powerless to protect its people. This is what the ultra-conservative majority of the U.S. Supreme Court wants. It's happening, and it's happening now. Wake up, America. This assault on our safety will only accelerate. This is serious, and it's coming to California. Um, as you know, uh, two weeks ago in Monterey Park, which is in suburban Los Angeles, there was a horrible tragedy of a mass shooting where 11 innocent people lost their lives on the eve of the Chinese lunar, new, new lunar year. Uh, we saw a shooting like three days later up in Half Moon Bay, California. Uh, it was a workplace issue, but, you know, four more victims there. You know, we've seen shootings, you know, I think we're, I forget, already up to almost 100 mass shootings, and, and we're not even the second or third day of February. I mean, it's that bad. Um, yeah. And this is going to be another issue that people are going to have to start really focusing in on is that, uh, you know, we saw it with the arguments going forth, you know, even the beginning of this week on the Hill when they loosened, they took the metal detectors away. And then they're allowing guns into committee hearings being carried by members, okay, which basically set everybody off. You know, it uh, it led it just leads to areas that people really don't want to go. And so, gun control, gun rights, and the insanity of the American fetish and obsession with firearms uh, is about to get even worse. So we're also keeping our eyes uh, on that as well. And that's it for me. Okay, great. Well, and it's not all of America, but yeah, that 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 
horrible perception that that, that is a great thing. Um, and the fact that there are more guns in this country than there are people um, is, is definitely scary. So I want to pivot to our guest and um, really the two, two pieces of work that he has out, um, one that you haven't seen yet and one that you can get right now, um, but coming up in your future is the documentary Karen Carpenter's Starving for Perfection, uh, which we hope kills it at the film festivals, um, and the book Little Girl, Girl Blue. Um, so welcome to the show, Randy. How are you doing? Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Uh, our, our pleasure. Um, so I, I was in tears within the first five minutes of watching the documentary. Um, oh, wow. The, the detail that, that you go into, that you went into in the book, and then the other details that come out um, in the film, your interview, um, Carney Wilson and Olivia and John, which that alone – that alone killed me watching Olivia in the, <laughs> yeah. the film. Um, but it, um, you, you create a portrait of Karen Carpenter unlike we've ever experienced before. Where did your fascination with her start? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, I think you mentioned in the introduction, um, did you mention Cynthia Gibb? Um, the TV movie, at least. I know you mentioned that. Um, I when didn't I mention was Cynthia by start, name, no. Yeah. Yeah. So Cynthia was, um, Cynthia Gibb was the actress who portrayed Karen in the CBS TV movie of the week uh, back in 1989. And she is interviewed in this, um, in this documentary and I think is one of our most powerful players in it. Um, but it was that TV movie that set my Carpenter's um, interest into motion. I was 13 years old. I was um, interested in choral music, you know, from my from my junior high choir experience. And there was just something about the Carpenters' stacked harmonies that appealed to me. And of course, Karen's voice. I mean, it was unlike anything I'd ever heard. And um, mm-hmm. so I was watching this TV movie, and the opening strains of Rainy Days and Mondays at the beginning had me hooked already. And then to see her you know, tragic life story unfold over the next couple of hours was just, it just lured me in and I wanted to know everything because I'd been born right in the middle of the Carpenter's heyday and really missed a lot of it firsthand. And so this was um, sort of me playing catch up to um, finding out all I had missed. And I was in the public library, I think the next day, um, going through their People magazines and trying to find um, you know, anything I could that was, was new and that would add to the story. Yeah, no, it's, I, I relate to that. I, I guess I, I came upon them a little earlier when they were current. Um, and the mm-hmm. first song that I, um, that, that wrapped me around it, um, completely was, um, on, on top of the world. Um, mm-hmm. so that, that and I was like Carol Burnett. It's like you know Carol Burnett wanted to be another carpenter and join them. That's you know I couldn't sing or <laughs> had no talent. But that was you know it's like I just imagine popping in and being able to sing with them and do all that. And um, you know throughout everything they did, I was you know an avid follower and just absolutely devastated uh, when she died. 
Um, Cynthia Gibbs' uh, interviews in the documentary are incredibly poignant. Um, the one that stood out for me was when she talks about the fact that when they were filming that movie, she was actually put into Karen's actual clothing and her reaction to the closet of clothing that that she saw. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Right. Yeah, it, it's so fascinating to hear Cynthia talk about that experience because she didn't know much about Karen before she was cast, and she only had about two weeks to prepare for the role, and that included, you know, learning to sort of sync the drums and all the things that she had to do to make this, um, you know, hour and 40 minutes or so of, of TV come to life. And she was only 24 at the time, and I think it's been in the years since then that she's become so perceptive about Karen's story. And through that experience of, of filming the TV movie, she learned a lot about the family dynamics. And, I mean, it would never happen today, but they used all the, the original homes in most cases. Um, she wore Karen's outfits. You know, I mean, anytime they do a TV movie or any kind of biopic or anything now, they have a costume designer that redesigns things to look like the original clothing. But no, they had her wearing Karen's actual clothing. Um, she was driving in their cars. She was in their house and in, in their, their bedrooms and their living rooms. And the parents, um, Harold and Agnes, were there in the house as they were filming. So I think she got a lot of insight into who these people were. And it, I've, I've talked with other members of the cast, Mitchell Anderson, who played Richard. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it seems like everybody there kind of got it, what went wrong and what, was, what Karen was dealing with, except for the family. And everybody was kind of looking right. at each other like, uh, are you feeling what I'm feeling kind of thing. Um, and even the same, Cynthia talks in her interview about the same um, ambulance crew they, they called a local ambulance company to come and um, be there for this opening scene that shows them taking her from the house whenever she collapsed in 1983. And the guys who were carrying Cynthia on the stretcher as Karen told her that they were the two guys that were there the morning that it actually happened. So there's just all kinds of eerie coincidences and, and stories. And you know, Cynthia, of course, talks about looking through the clothing and, and seeing how the, the clothing sizes changed so drastically and going from things that were too large for her to wear to things that were way too small for her to wear. There were some outfits she said, even though she got down to, I think she said like 103 pounds or something to play this part, that they had to, you know, film her from a, a different angle or something because they couldn't zip the zipper and things like that. So, um, man, she just got a, an insight into it that I don't think anybody else had had before or since. Yeah, it's um, that that was such a fascinating perspective. Um, in your book, you know, when I read your book and and compared it to the documentary, it was interesting because I got almost another different layer from your perspective in the book that necessarily got represented in in the documentary. The documentary is very authentic and it has a lot of voices from you know different people as well but yours is kind of like the more objective voice in the book um and i mm -hmm. got a, a more of a sense of 
some strength in Karen in your book that, you know, the, the documentary shows a lot of her vulnerability. Um, what is mm-hmm, your perspective right. putting those together of the line between her vulnerability and her strength as a person? Right. Um, you know, I think the documentary and book, you can't just have one or the other. I mean, I think each stands alone, but each also tells another part of the story. And um, with the documentary, of course, we have the voices of those who knew her and worked with her, and then also those who were just inspired by her and who maybe had um, similarities in their own careers that they could speak with us about. Um, and with the book, I was able to interview, you know, over 100 people at that time um, from people who worked very closely with her or, you know, were dated Karen or um, instrumentalists who work with them and that kind of thing. But all the way down to the the lady who ran the apartments whenever the carpenters moved to Downey. So it's like such this huge um, group of people that, that I was able to sample for, for the book. And you just can't pack all of that into a hundred minutes of a documentary. Um, as far as Karen's vulnerability versus her strengths and things like that, um, I think you're probably right. More of the vulnerability is discussed in the, in the documentary. And I do think that there is a, a lot of drive in Karen to do something more and to break away um, you know, we talk about that a little bit with her attempt to record a solo album in 1979. And it's like she would get almost to the point where she could achieve some sort of independence and maybe even notoriety for herself. But then something would always pull her back. And mm-hmm. she never quite broke free of, of a lot of the things and the controls that were um, in place around her. And I, th- I think the the drive was there and just maybe not supported in a way that she trusted herself to really do anything on her own. She'd been told for so long, you know, that Richard's the star. And from the time she was a little girl, she was kind of trained up to be Richard's support. And, you know, he was already showing promise and interest in music by the time she she came along. And then he became this kind of piano prodigy as a, as a young person. And she tried playing the flute and the accordion and different things like that. And, you know, didn't take to any of those. Um, but then even when she became a, a drummer and, and took interest in that and became really good at, you know, being a jazz drummer, it still wasn't valued within the family in the same way that Richard's talents were valued. It was seen as, Oh, well, good. You can play along with Richard's trio you know, that, that has his name at the top of it. Or, oh, now here's this voice that, you know, it's just incredible. And at, at that time it was rough around the edges and needed some, some um, not, not training at all, but just some, some age to it. But she was then seen as, okay, now you can sing demos for the songs that Richard's writing. And it was never really about her. And I think that's what's kind of sad and what kept her maybe from having the confidence to really break free and do something on her own. Right. Yeah, it, it, her mother, Agnes, in, in book and film, is sort of a, a, a fascinating background character. Um, although the one thing in the book that I really, you know, because you're, 
your style is not judgmental and you don't push the reader or the viewer, you know, what they should feel, what they should think. You, you, you lay it out in a very objective way and allow us mm-hmm. our, our own perceptions. But I really found it fascinating in the book that even with um, Karen being, you know, not the one they anticipated being the star that, you know, is all behind Richard, that, that when it came push to shove, when um, I think it was, you know, within Herb Alpert's company, they had another drummer coming in to play on some album. Agnes actually jumped up and was like, no, why aren't you using Karen? Karen's phenomenal. Sort of Karen's defended her, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, it was sort of like this interesting, not black and white that, that, you know, that, that she, she did have the corner. I also wondered um, sort of my takeaway thoughts after absorbing your work was kind of a question on whether, you know, obviously Agnes's external um, treatment and feedback to Karen on subtle, you know, mother daughter complex relationship side definitely had an influence, but I was also thinking and wondering within the context of anorexia and that, that internal obsessive need to control that whether mm-hmm. it couldn't have possibly also been a genetic um, impulse on the part of Karen. Agnes was very controlling, you know, was that potentially Karen's own controlling nature that that also fueled that. Absolutely. I think it was, you know, she was modeled from Agnes, the OCD that she took on herself later on in life. You know, Olivia talked to me in the, I think it's in the book, maybe not the documentary, but Olivia said um, when she went to Karen's apartment that she noticed that all of the hangers were exactly, you know, a half inch apart and everything was color-coded as far as the, the clothing and the shoes, and everything was very OCD for Karen. And she grew up with a mother who, um, as the neighbor kids told me, <laughs> that she would not only polish the locks, like the gold brass locks on the windows with a toothbrush, but then she would go next door and clean the windows of the house, the neighbor's house, that faced her. So, I mean, this was, this was a woman who dealt in control in just mm-hmm. about every possible way. And so Karen saw that from the time she was, was born and didn't know that that was unusual. Exactly. And the, um, in the book, you go into even more detail because this was stuff I was completely unaware of, although I had a hint from a, an old show back in the day that I saw that where they interviewed the family but um, Agnes was actually very much in control of their finances and their running their careers. And I mean, she was not just passive mom at home. Um, yeah, it, in, in, in the, the early doctor- days, even through the, their first few hits, I mean, they were up into we've only just begun and because well, Close to You was their first, number one. Um, we've only just begun. They were well into their second or third hit song by the time management was able to kind of pry the checkbooks and all of that from Agnes. And it had to be done very carefully because she was controlling all the money and putting it in different banks here and there. And, okay, this bank is only insured up to this amount, so we're going to go down the street and we're going to open another account here. 
And she had her own people, people that she had worked with and, and that sort of thing that came in and was running it. And then so finally they had to, um, you know, come in and say, you know, this is some sophisticated stuff. We need sophisticated people who know what they're doing and investing and, and you know, putting money in the right places. And she didn't want to give up that control. Those were her kids, and she was cashing the checks. Yeah. I, I remember in the documentary – um, they were interviewing them, the whole family, and Agnes was talking about how uh, people would send them gifts. And she was like, mm. I will never forget this part where she said, and of course, and she almost looked at Karen glaringly, and of course we send them all back. We cannot accept those. You know, and it was just sort of like that. that Very Joan that Crawford, throwback. very you can keep one gift exactly. kind of thing. Yeah, it's like it was, it was, you know, here in, at the time, it was like watching, like, one of my favorite stars being just, you know, the mother reprimand and, you know, you will be a good girl. Um, mm-hmm. it, one of the things that you talk about and you laid out from the information you have that I'm kind of fascinated with, and I don't know that there's an answer, and I don't want to read too much into it, okay. but there was a really masculine part of Karen that mm-hmm. seemed like it was oppressed in her because there's a constant comment about how she was a tomboy and, you know, she hung with the guys and she played drums and then she was kind of forced into the ultimate pristine, you know, girly girl outfits and all that. Um, what did, what did you kind of pick up on that aspect of her? You know, I get asked this question quite often because I think nowadays even more people tune into that and, and sense that in Karen and go, you know, what, was she gay? And I never, I mean, having been in that situation myself, it's, I don't want anybody to out, didn't want anybody to out me when I wasn't ready and things like that. So right. I, I never want to go there. Um, what I have what talked about and what I've, you know, what I feel comfortable talking about based upon my research and, you know, the friends of hers that talked to me about um, some really intimate things is that she was, um, I guess she struggled with the expectations of femininity. (laughs) Um, There was this expectation, and I think this came from Agnes too, and maybe the reason she was a little disappointed in her daughter or something is that Karen was not the ideal 1950s, 1960s girly girl who, you know, wore the frilly dresses and went to prom, you know, with um, in the, just the ideal of that time period, you know, with the fancy hair and the, the makeup and all that. She wasn't that. She was into drums and she talked like a beatnik with the guys from the band and she sat with her legs spread and you know, her, her best friend, a woman named Frenda Franklin, um, Frenda was her, her best, her day-to-day best friend. You know, a lot of people talk about Karen Carpenter and Livia were best friends. That was her famous best friend, but Frenda was the day-to-day best friend you call for everything. She was her maid of honor in her wedding, um, excuse me, matron of honor. And Frenda told me when she met Karen that she walked across the stage like a Mack truck. And it was Frenda. Uh, she was the wife of one of their managers. 
it was Frenda and others that were kind of given the task to feminize Karen and to teach her how to walk like a lady and talk like a lady. And this is how you carry a clutch whenever you go to a, a fancy Hollywood event. And so there was effort after those first few years, you know, I mean, even Karen's singing voice seemed to change around that time. She had a more husky, um, powerful voice in some of those earlier albums and some of those early hits. And even that began to soften as they kind of talked her out of, I think, being who she really was. And um, that's, I think, one of the saddest things, because I think she was just uncomfortable in her own, own skin. And, you know, me as a 13-year-old kid, looking back, that may be something I clued into, you know, subtly, that I identified with her in that way. I I can relate to that, and I think that is probably something that I also subtly got attracted to with her, because it's... Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of her songs and a lot of the, the different things, and I'm sure this is universal why she sold so much, but, you know, it's like it, as as a, a guy, admittedly a gay guy, um, when she sang, she felt like she was singing for me, you know. And, <clears throat> exactly. And I mean that, too, with my own masculinity in that and the emotions. It wasn't, um, you know, it was it, – it, it was – uh, gender-ish um, agnostic for me. You know? yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It, I, I think that was there. Which also, you know, a lot of her reaction to her weight that kind of triggered the anorexia, you know, obviously came from her own discomfort of her own body and, you know, obviously swayed the perception. And if if she wasn't in tune to femininity innately that would also that disconnect would also help trigger that because if you don't have any touch point of of what you want to be as a feminine person then you're going by those criteria that like i've got to get as thin as possible um Mm -hmm. one thing in the book too that came out that i thought was sort of fascinating again in this trigger was agnes was kind of one of the ones who originally started helping her diet. So it sort of right. led me to believe yeah. that the mother influence was, you know, in that. And, and I know my sister struggled with her weight when she was uh, a young girl as well. And, you know, my parents did this where they, you know, let her know she weighed too much and she was going right. to be held back by it. Um, so I, I definitely well, I think that's exactly that what happened with Karen. She was on her first diet at, at 18 years old. And, um, you know, she was on the Stillman water diet at 18 years old and under the guidance of, of Agnes and the family doctor. And um, so, yeah, I think that that was, that was, again, kind of modeled for her. This is what a young lady should look like or, you know, we need to trim down a little bit um, for, for whatever reasons. But, um, yeah, I think Karen just, she was absolutely uncomfortable in her own skin. And being then told, no, this is what you're supposed to talk like. This is what you're supposed to walk like. I mean, I remember growing up, growing up as a kid on a farm in Oklahoma, to tell you a little bit about me, I was the type that would naturally be 
running around curating my Wizard of Oz museum that I had in the building in the backyard. <laughs> so <laughs> needless, to, needless to say, there were a lot of masculine influences in a farming community like that. I mean, come on. And here's how you're supposed to spit like a man. Here's how you're supposed to do this like a man. And so I absolutely get what she was was getting from people in reverse because that was the expectation for me too. You're not supposed to walk like that or talk like that or have interest in those things. And especially if your parents are telling you that, luckily it wasn't so much that from my parents, but just the community in general. Um, but yeah, if you're, if your parents are telling you that too, I think it's, it's definitely something that's going to, going to haunt you for a long time. Right. Yeah. One thing that came out in the documentary in particular um, that I was aware of as being, you know, part of the mass fandom was that Olivia Newton-John and Karen Carpenter had a close friendship. And I remember at her funeral that even though she didn't literally help carry the coffin, that Olivia Newton-John was named as one of the pallbearers. Um, But the interviews, um, I thank you for having those interviews. That was, you know, so meaningful for to see Olivia talking about it. Um, in the documentary, um, the one right, that and that was one absolute... of Olivia's last interviews. Oh, I, I totally believe that. Yeah, is um, and definitely her last interview. The... You know, talking about her friend Karen. Right. the The piece or the interview in particular that blew me away was the interview that she talked about on the day that Karen died. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, I believe it's where Olivia was talking about finding out the news. Is that right? Right, right. The news of Karen of Karen's death. Yeah, she was. Um, she she tells the story of that that she was on her way to meet Karen for a lunch, and that the news came over the radio that that Karen Carpenter had died, and um, she talks about how shocking that was, and you know she she really had a great insight into Karen around that time. She talks about, you know, having to be there for her or being the one there for her whenever uh, Karen's marriage broke up and how, you know, what a gentle soul she was. And she was deeply wounded by, you know, those continued, um, those continued hits. You know, it's like those last few years of Karen's life were, were, were so rough. She had that solo album that she put so much heart and soul into and the family and the record label basically told her it was unreleasable as is, and she ended up shelving it. Um, she immediately got into, I think what was like a rebound because she had been in this, this romance with this album for so long. And now she was told that's not going to happen. She gets into a whirlwind romance that, you know, in just a couple of months, she's engaged to this guy. She doesn't even know who turned out to be, you know, somebody that was, not who he was representing himself to be in many ways. And that marriage fell apart. And it's like every time we thought she was going to do something for her, the solo album, or do something for her, get married and start a family, it ended up, you know, with the rug pulled out from under her again. And it's, it was just too much for one person to take. Yeah. Um, pivot a little bit. How, what do you, how do you, through all of the portrayal and the documentary and the book, um, 
how do you feel about Richard and his, who he is and the complexity of his situation? I, I think Richard is probably a very injured person. I think he's never been the same again. And it's, it's understandable because, you know, as I think it's um, Suzanne Summers in the documentary says, you know, in that one moment, not only is his sister and best friend gone, but his career is gone and everything. I think she says, poof, you know, it just evaporates. And I don't think he's ever been able to get over it. I think there's probably, um, you know, guilt, the same kind of guilt that Agnes had over the years that caused her, you know, to, to say, well, the opening of my book, she says to Barry Morrow, who was coming to interview mm-hmm. her before he wrote the, the TV movie, he says that he went to the door and she met him and said, I want you to know I did not kill my daughter. So, I mean, this family was, I think, paranoid about the accusations and the assumptions that people were making because they really didn't do a lot to help her. And um, I, I, I think he you know, has just devoted his, his life to tending to the music and continuing to tweak and perfect. You know, we talk about this perfection. Karen and Richard had that drive for perfection in life and in music, and he has continued all these years to try and perfect the music that was already perfect to begin with. I mean, come on. But to continue to remix and tweak and re-record and repackage and I I don't know if it can ever be perfect enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I remember and, right after she passed, like within a year or two, he had released another album of where he did the singing. I think he had Dionne Warwick on it. He had another young man right. um, as a singer on one of it, and it was you know it was definitely his sound behind it. It was the same methodology as he had done with all the Carpenter music and. Um, it was it, it, it was a little bit heartbreaking of you know how is he going to go reinvent himself without her? Right. I mean it was you know, and obviously very much out there. Um, Randy, I want to go a little bit so you know we let people know how they can access this. Where can where can they get the book? Where can they eventually uh, see the movie? Um, how can people find out more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the book, Little Girl Blue, The Life of Karen Carpenter, has been out for almost 13 years now, and it's still really the go-to for most people um, looking for information on Carpenters. And um, it's available you know, on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, anywhere fine books are sold, as they say. Um, <laughs> and... The, the documentary itself is um, – that's going to be a little harder to get a hold of. There is a, a trailer that's about to drop for that this next week, which I think will have a lot of people talking. Um, and right now it's just um, going to be traveling through the film festival circuit and hopefully getting distribution of some kind later on in the year. It would be great to you know, be able to direct people to a streamer or a network or something at um, a later point. But for now we're – we're premiering um, a week from tonight, actually, um, Friday the 10th at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. We've also got screenings coming up at um, the Sedona Film Festival in Arizona and uh, Milwaukee and a, a lot of the smaller regional fests. Um, 
but the the big one is this premiere, the, the world premiere next Friday night. Yeah, and so watch for that. Read the book because actually, I think you know if if you love Karen Carpenter, it's good to read the book. It's incredible background, and then you know overlay the documentary when you can find it. Um, and I'm sure the momentum is going to build on this documentary. It is a great, great documentary. Um, so I have Thank every you so much. confidence that, that it's, it's, it's going to be really big um, as it gets to the circuit. And then, yeah, I can't even imagine a streamer not wanting to pick it up. So, I, you know, I'm even anticipating you'll have people, you know, banging down your door over that one. Um, I did want to <laughs> ask you I briefly – <laughs> Well, yeah, you can come back and punch me if, I, if I'm wrong, but I'm not anticipating okay. you will. <laughs> so, but um, I'm going to ask you about your other um, fortes into biography with Dolly Parton and uh, Judy Garland. What, what stood out for you with them? Um, obviously, you already alluded to Judy with uh, your Wizard of Oz fascination as a youth. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, it's interesting because um, Judy and Dolly were my were my two before Karen came along, and now that's kind of my my holy trinity. Um, and I guess Dolly was probably first. I you know was a kid watching her her self titled TV TV show, not the ABC one in the 80s, but the one in the late 70s, where she'd come down on a swing at the beginning and she'd walk right toward the camera and sing directly at you. So I, I remember some of my earliest memories are being glued to my grandma's big Zenith TV. And there's this bouffant Dolly Parton and, and sparkles and big wigs and singing to me. And she might as well have been, you know, like a Mr. Rogers cause I thought she was talking to me. Um, so that's where that began. And yeah, of course the Judy Garland obsession began with wizard of Oz and then learning more about her as I, as I grew up. But um, when little girl blue came out and was a success. Actually, just within the first few weeks of, of that book coming out, my editor messaged and said, so what's your next book? <laughs> and I, I really had no idea because I didn't even know I had one book in me, much less more. <laughs> and uh, I found out that they had a series, the same publisher had a series called Music- Musicians in Their Own Words. And it was books of interviews and articles and things heavily based upon interviews with um, with different musicians. And I pitched Judy Garland to them at the time, and it was their first female in the series because they had had like Hendrix on Hendrix or Coltrane on Coltrane. Um, and so I pitched it, and they went for it. And it was, you know, I, it wasn't written by me front to back. It's, um, you know, I present each of the pieces and talk about their significance leading in to each one. But it's, it's really Judy's story in her, in her own words. And and then several years later, I, I pitched Dolly, and that has become, I believe, their most successful title in the series now. That's awesome. And and so I'm going to put on the editor's hat. Who's next for you? <laughs> I I really don't know. I I have some things that I I should finish up before I take on any other projects. I feel like I'm always spinning like about a dozen plates, and you know, every once in a while, I have to give another one a spin here and there to keep it going. So before I take on any okay. other projects, I think I need to just deal with this documentary. Well, now. yeah. And, and, and I realize you're, you are about to enter the carpenter tsunami of, of uh, 
you know, this this momentum and everything that's going to happen around this. Um, but uh, I'm, I am going to drop a an unsolicited suggestion just because I love your writing and I love how you approach it okay. and, you know, kind of lay it all out there. Um, but I would love to see you do Donna Summer. Oh, okay, okay. Interesting. No, I, I, think... I get suggestions every now and then, and it's I have to decide, like, who can I spend – at least three or four years with <laughs> and yeah and because yeah. i i kind of go into you know whoever it is you know, it was judy world and and my husband was you know every day he would come home and and he'd be like oh the warbling <laughs> make the warbling stop <laughs> even though he loved her it was like, we're, we're in judy world you know for, for judy land for so many years and then dolly was i guess a little bit of a a relief after after the loudness of some of judy but um, right. Yeah, you kind yeah. of immerse yourself in that person as you're as you're piecing it all together. Yeah. Well, as a Karen Carpenter graduate, uh, that was my next go-to, and I think there's probably an equally fascinating background story that probably hasn't been told there either. So um, mm-hmm. anyway, well, and just putting Karen it Karen loved Donna Summer. <laughs> I don't know if you got to that in the book. Karen loved Donna Summer. No, she, I, she even mentioned um, when she was going to record her solo album in 79, she said to the producer, Phil Ramone, he said, well, what do you like? What do you want to do? And she said, well, I love Donna Summer. And, you know, mentioned that Hot Stuff was her favorite song at the time. Well, that, that, that makes me love her even more. But I do remember <laughs> when reading about her solo album that, that Richard, when she was talking to him about it, was like, do anything you want, just don't do disco, was his <laughs> big thing with her. Which, which I love. Was, which to me went right for it. Yeah, and, and it, me too. And it was, like, it was like going, I definitely, she definitely could do disco. She could be awesome disco. Um, so, Randy, unfortunately, we are literally down to our final seconds here. I want to thank you so much for the work you do, everything you're putting out, I think it's fascinating. Um, you know, folks definitely get the book um, and definitely watch for the, the movie. Um, and I'm really excited about what things you're going to come up with in the future. I, I think they're, they're, they're a needed part of cultural history that you are chronicling for us. And um, it, it's hugely, hugely valuable. Um, so thank you so much. Oh, and thank, thank you, you for thank showing you so up much. today for us. Really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. I want to thank Brody as well for his work on this show and for being the editor of the Los Angeles Blade. Please check out the Los Angeles Blade at, surprise, surprise, losangelesblade.com. It is the news source you should check out every single day. New, unique, fascinating, highly journalistic articles. Um, particularly focusing on LGBTQ issues. As for us at Rated LGBT Radio, please tell your friends to subscribe. And we will be back again next week. Um, And I do know what the show is going to be about, but I'm not going to tell you. But it will be absolutely fascinating, and you will want to hear it all. So until then, have a great week, and we will talk to you again very, very soon. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.